Good morning, church. If you haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Jake Stouffer. Today's reading comes from several, several verses in the book of Genesis, uh, chapters 1 and 2. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 26. You can find that on page 1 of your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We'll now jump to chapter 2, verse 5. It says this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not unashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Janet and Jake. Let me pray for us again. Jesus, we come to you now and we ask for your help in all the forms that we need it. Uh, We need encouragement, we need comfort, uh, we need hope, we need correction, 
Uh, we need humility. We need. We could probably run just across the gamut of every emotion, every situation, and just know that it's represented in the room. So, God, who knows everything, who sees everybody, would you speak specifically to my friends in the room, those who are watching online, those who are listening, uh, wherever they find themselves, God, you, you see them, you know them. I want to ask on their behalf uh, that you would speak a particular word to them. Uh, even let them get lost in thought, let their mind wander during the sermon for things that they need to apply or hear or reflect on fr- from you. This topic is massive, our frailty, our smallness, and we take a deep breath and rest in your bigness, in your wisdom, and more than that, in your love and in your sacrifice, uh, in the way that you gave yourself up for us so that we could be rescued and redeemed. We, we trust and rest in that. So may that actually be the starting place for our conversation on gender and sexuality, and would you do um, good to my friends in the room who've been with us for a long time, and for those who this is new for them, they're exploring Christianity, they're wondering if if there is truth out there, if these words are reliable, uh, would you speak in a specific way, in a tender way, in a very personal way to them? So, so we ask for your help uh, for everyone in the room. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, I've been looking forward to this series for quite a while, not because I think it's going to be easy, but because I think it's super important. And, and one of my hopes for us in this series um, is that we would encounter Jesus in fresh ways, in deep ways, in ways that are meaningful. I have no illusion that in a couple of weeks, in a few monologues, I'm going to unravel all the mysteries of all the things that you read online, all the things you've carried in your story, all the stuff that you've kind of navigated in your relationship. So I know what we'll accomplish will be pretty small in a couple of weeks. But I'm asking God that you would meet him. That in the middle of your story and your questions, that Jesus would seem... Uh, to be for you who he really is. He would be big, he would be near, he would be loving, he would be powerful, he would be sufficient. So I'm, I'm praying that for you. And I, I want to kind of keep hovering around that because just the nature of the conversation is that we can't address every specific issue. And because I don't have like one agenda, I'm not trying to speak against those people or that thing. I'm actually trying to accomplish something pretty broad, which by definitions means it won't be very effective when you try to do like a million things at one time, which is the story of my life, it just isn't as effective as if you were just doing one thing. But I don't have a burden for just one thing. I have a desire for healing and help for all of us, regardless of where you find yourself. Whether you would identify as heterosexual or you would have same-sex attraction, if you're in relationships with people that are different than you, where everybody thinks exactly as you think, Christian or non-Christian, If you have pain in your story, if there's abuse in your story, if there's active addiction, if there's tons of confusion, if you got hurt from the church or hurt even from the LGBTQ community, uh, there's a lot of things that you might be carrying. And I'm asking that God would speak to all those. And so I can't do like a sermon on all of those. So what we'll do is zoom out large and ask for God's redemptive story to give a framework to address and help where you find yourself. So, so I want to just name that, and I want to name up front that I think when we encounter Jesus, um, you see healing, you see confrontation for, for sure. You see people um, who are frustrated with what he says. They're confused by what he says. Some people walk away from what he says, but, the, but they don't walk away wanting to do themselves harm or, or feeling disillusioned with God. 
I think when we encounter the real Jesus, it transforms us. And so maybe if you've been in churches or you've encountered this topic from a certain perspective or worldview and you've walked away wounded or hurt, I wonder if what you experienced with people or uh, from sound bites was actually Jesus or if it was something else, some distorted, some distorted view. And again, I think there's tons of pain in our community. And I just want to start by saying, like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the pain and the confusion. There's been times where people should have been more clear from places like this and haven't been that have caused some pain. There are people in your life who, who have treated you certain ways on all sides of the spectrum, right? You've lost friendships. Uh, you've faced like conflict. There's tension in families over issues of gender and sexuality. I- I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for places where you've come forward in a church and asked for help. And again, I'm not just speaking about one kind of person. When you come forward with sexual addiction and you finally have the courage to step into the light and that's not met with grace, that's incredibly painful. And when you've been carrying something that you feel like nobody would love you if they knew about that and you put it on the table for someone to see and it's pushed against in those spaces, it can be really, really painful. So I just want to say I'm sorry for the hurt that you felt. And if you knew we were talking about this, like thanks for showing up. Thanks for being here. Thanks for actually letting God's word speak. And so, so I want to apologize for kind of a church Christian hurt. And I also want to acknowledge that there's hurt on other sides as well. Just as I've been trying to hear stories and engage in the topic perspectives would just annihilate people from slightly different spaces. And so you have people who are, who are canceling each other. Uh, there's, there's examples of people who have medically transitioned who now are asking for God to speak into these spaces. And so I think those hurts are often rooted in fear. When we're afraid, we do all kinds of strange things. So there's fear of rights being taken away. There's fear of losing relationships. There's, there's fear of rejection. There's fears of things going too far in our culture or losing our country. There's fears of, of losing freedoms, of, of being misunderstood, of being canceled, of being hated. There's just a ton of fears all around. And what the scriptures say is that perfect love drives out fear. So regardless of where you find yourself, all, all across the spectrum, and I made like a long list and I'm actually not going to read it on purpose this morning because I'll leave something out. Would you just know like your situation, regardless of your background, your upbringing, your family, your current struggle, your current understanding, God sees and he cares about all of that. And so the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is just help you see that, help you see that God cares, help you see that, that God engages the things that you care about. So, so we're going to do four weeks on gender and sexuality, and, and I want to use four themes. I want to talk about kind of the design that God has given us. That's where we'll go today. That's why we're in Genesis 1 and 2, this origin story of how the heck we got here. And then own the fact that we read the world and see the world through actually a very broken lens. So we read Genesis 1 and 2 and experience it through a Genesis 3 lens of, of sin and brokenness. So, so second week tomorrow, tomorrow. Next Sunday, we'll talk about uh, distortions. We'll talk about where it went wrong and how we experience the, the brokenness in those spaces. And then I'm going to take a massive risk. I think we've got to talk about how do you even read the Bible? So you'll have questions come up like, like why do you eat shellfish and then have strong opinions against homosexuality? Aren't both of those condemned in the Old Testament? So I want to like answer that or 
try to answer that or give you some sort of framework. So we'll use the word discernment on that week. Just going, how do you actually read the scriptures? And what I want to do is just see the different kinds of lists in the scriptures where you see things that are prohibited, things that actually are called unclean. And you also see things that you deal with that are lumped together. Things like greed and slander and sexual sin and disobedience to parents and envy all get roped into the same passage. So how do you read that with humility and courage and again find Jesus in the middle of that? So, so a sermon on discernment. And then we want to end with dignity. How do we live this out in the world around us? How do we walk with people? How do we treat ourselves with dignity? How do we be a community that's a safe place where someone could come forward and could say, hey, I have uh, loneliness. I have deep, deep confusion. I have a ton of trauma and abuse. I have things I've been carrying that nobody knows about. I have things that no one in this community knows about that I have a whole other world and they, they're fully involved and I want to integrate those two worlds like where people could come forward and say, hey, I need some, some help. So how do we walk with dignity? Asking God to make us the kind of community where, where people can come into the light and encounter the love of Christ in embodied ways. Those are, those are my goals. And to accomplish that, what we need is not savvy from the pulpit. We, we need Jesus. We need him to speak to us. We need him to share with us. We need him to, to open up his word for us. And again, we've just said four monologues won't be enough. I'm using that word for these sermons. I know you love them, but they are fairly limited in how this exchange happens. So these classes that we're talking about are meant to be just a one more conversation, one more step. So a couple of weeks on just kind of all things LGBTQ, your questions, your concerns, your opinions, your stories. We'll use something to guide our dialogue and then make it just open for questions. So we'll do four weeks on that. And then to help it be practical, we won't just stay in theories. I don't want to just stay talking about the what's of this topic. I want to talk about like how you actually live this out. So we'll spend some time around this theme of sexual integrity, both for men and for women. Going, how do we heal? How do we go forward? How do we bring dignity to those around us? So those, those classes are meant to be helped. The books in the back are meant to be helpful. They're not exhaustive by any means. And there's a ton more. If you've read all of those and you want more, I'd love to kind of reference some more for you. If you have a particular question you're wrestling with, would love to be a resource. And also would love to not just push classes and books on you, but would love to sit down and would love to talk and would love to hear and would love to process your story together. So, so I want to like say maybe these four weeks is the beginning of something that maybe is years in the making for us as a community to live into God's good plan for his people to be a redemptive place, a place where we actually encounter God's word and we engage what he's done and what it means for us to follow him, what it means to apprentice Jesus, which at a big level, what that means is to find your story underneath the story of God, to locate your individual story as an apprentice of Jesus underneath God's large story would be a massive goal that I have for you in this season. And, and I want to actually help us go that direction this morning by simply talking about story, talking about how we're formed by stories, talking about the story of God and what it shows us. And I really want to just kind of say, well, if this is true, then what does that mean for us? We'll walk through a couple of categories. We'll talk about the fact that there is a designer, there is a creator, there's someone behind this whole thing. What are the implications of that? What, what is actually that design? If there's a designer, then there's a design. How does that bring dignity will be the next place I want to go from this passage. Honoring the differences in that design. 
And then talking about the direction or the end or the goal of some of this design. So the, the designer, his design, dignity differences and direction is where I want us to, to aim. And here's the amazing thing. This book of Genesis starts in a really helpful place because it's written to people who have been enslaved for 400 years, who have forgotten who they are, who've been living in a culture with all kinds of rival stories that make meaning and sense of their world. There's lots of pagan gods or Egyptian gods that they have been around for 400 years is a really long time. Think about just how long our country's been in existence. So for 400 years, these people have been enslaved in Egypt and it has shaped them. It's changed them. The story they've been living into has radically impacted how they see themselves, how they see the world around them, how they see God. And there's incredible parallels to that to our story. The Bible talks about this world being a kind of thing that enslaves us, a space where there's a real enemy, where we are born into it, actually enslaved to sin and brokenness. And we've heard rival stories our, our whole life, and we struggle to know and understand, how does God actually fit into this story of mine? And, and everything is telling a story. Your, your past tells a story. Your, your family of origin tells a story. Shame tells a story. Places where you have been successful tells you a kind of story. Your body tells you a story. The church tells you a story. You hear lots of stories and what you need to find a place to grab footing on is what does God say about the world? Because he tells a story about how we got here and where dignity comes from. And that would actually give us meaning and purpose as we think about how to go forward. So, so I want to walk through this passage in spaces where we acknowledge pain, where we try to make specific application. But, but by definition, it will be kind of broad because the story itself is kind of a broad story. And actually, I think it's fascinating that the Bible is full of stories. And they're full of very gritty, earthy, sinuous, and sensual stories. Even in the book of Genesis, you see a wide range of, of sexual stories. Stories full of sexual brokenness, full of sexual fulfillment. Places where you see people living into their own brokenness with people around them. You see people kind of struggling with infertility and taking matters into their own hands with like a story like, like Hagar. You see sexual assault. You see people wrestling with multiple wives. You see human trafficking. You see homosexual practice. You see sexual violence. You see genuine love and romance. You see unhinged sexual desire and how it costs those around them. You see manipulation through sex. You see power and approval. You see all kinds of things in the world of Genesis that relate to the life that you live. The Bible is an embodied story. And here's the great news. More than just being relevant to your life, it's a hopeful story. Because Genesis is aiming somewhere. And it's aiming to help us understand where real redemption comes from. So to say God has a story over your life invites you to be honest about your story because the story God tells is one that's pretty gritty. I mean, it's not PG, it's not G-rated, it's a pretty graphic story which invites you to be honest about your story. And it provides a ton of hope for your story because God isn't just watching this or organizing this. He has a design and a plan for 
redemption. So you could lay over the Bible a large story arc of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and then fall and brokenness, Genesis chapter 3, and then a longing for redemption that comes to fulfillment in Christ, and then a promise of restoration. So there's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And whatever you're dealing with, it fits into that story. That there's a creator gives relevance. That we live in a fallen or broken world gives relevance. That, that God has actually promised to redeem and Christ came to actually take away the brokenness is incredibly relevant to your life. And that he promises to one day fully restore is a beautiful hope for you. And then again, we just said there's like tons of rival stories. The story of the Bible is of a creator God who loves you. But there are other stories that you've heard, a story of, of just pure naturalism, that we, we really are just flesh bags. Dang. Like there is a dehumanizing story that you just simply came out of nowhere. All you are is material. It's a dehumanizing story, but it's one that's taken root in our world. And there's a story that you are bifurcated into two parts. There's a a physical part of you and then this uh, immaterial part of you that are at, at war with each other. And your job is to listen to the immaterial part to overcome the material part. There's a kind of dualism. You see it in the ancient world. You see it in the time that Jesus walked the earth. And you see it really prevalent now, this idea that there, there are two parts of you at war and you have to beat down one of them. And you can't trust your body to tell you who you are. You have to discover and discern who you are and actually free yourself from your body, which historically we see has caused people to harm the body or to indulge the body. It's, it's a massive story. Again, one that actually we, we come out of nowhere lends itself to this in, uh, individualism that you are the only one that matters in the story. And your, your fulfillment and your joy, that, that is the thing that is the ultimate highest good. That's a, a rival story that you hear that the Bible actually shows us what happens when we live into those stories. It also shows us our amazing propensity to blend stories together. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, what you see is a, a millennium struggle for God's people to stay faithful and true to the one true God who describes himself as, as a lover and as a husband who is wooing a bride to himself. It's a relational dynamic. It's not distant and cold. It actually has a romance and an intimacy to it. And what you watch throughout the pages of Scripture is God will free and rescue and redeem. People will get settled in. And then quickly they turn to these other stories around them. So they're happy to serve Yahweh and go to the synagogue. And they're also have Asherah poles built and worship pagan deities so that their crops might grow, so they don't get outed from the commerce around them. You see God's people blending together the stories. And I say all that to you, not to overwhelm you or to impress you with all these different stories, but to invite you to just consider, hey, what story is shaping you? Because you are story-formed. You make meaning from the story that you're telling yourself, what you deserve. And again, there's a, a shame version of that story and a pride version of that story. There's a sensual version of that and then one that would deny yourself version of that. You, you have a story and I would actually suggest to you all of us have blended stories. We're, we're not just one 
kind of thinking. Actually, the nature of the fallen and broken world and the loudness of the rival stories put us in spaces where we actually experience lots of blurring and blending, which leads to all kinds of confusion and I think actual pain as well. Okay, so in all of that, God starts his story with himself. The most important thing about you, the most important reality in the universe, people who are coming out of slavery would hear this as both strange and as great news. Oh, we're not just left to the warring gods around us. We're not actually just just left to invent our own purpose and hope. That there's a God who designed things gives us some sort of hope. So so let's now go to our reading from uh, the end of Genesis chapter 1 to verse 26. It starts with a designer if you're taking notes. That's the first D. Then God said in verse 26 of chapter 1, Then God said, God's the one who says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Do you see the, the godness of that verse? It starts with him. And actually what we've skipped is these other days of creation where out of nothing God creates everything. You are here because there is a designer. And what's amazing about what we read is that he's not just distantly the designer. He's intimately involved. He's not disconnected. He's, he's close inside. Flip over to chapter 2 in that space. Did you catch that? kind of zoomed in narrative. You see the overarching narrative of chapter one, you kind of get this large genealogy. It's a pattern that follows in Hebrews or in the Hebrew Bible. You'll see a genealogy and then you'll see some details go in. So here's the genealogies of creation. Now let me zoom in around people. And what you see is God with dirt under his fingernails crafting man. Okay, it's not voodoo like he needed some materials to shake into a pot and create. He's actually showing us how intimately involved he is. The reason why he did it that way is so that you would know there is a designer and he sees you and he cares about you. Hey, the implications of that are that you don't have to create your own destiny. You don't have to define yourself and you actually can't do that. If there's a and your insatiable quest for individuality and your own self-fulfillment, but man, is it good news to kind of drink the cool, refreshing water that you don't have to define yourself. You don't have to establish yourself. You don't have to to make yourself something. And you're not actually an accident. The designer has a design. And just for the sake of time, we'll skip, but you, you read all these different things he wants them to do and how he wants them to function in the garden. Even their sexuality as men and women is so they can procreate. He, he has made design in the universe because he's the designer. It's good news that you and I don't have to, even if it's challenging that we can't create our own reality. This is the way the Bible talks. I know you've heard other rival stories that it's all on your shoulders, but could you imagine the implications of of hearing that there is a creator who's, who's good and loving? The New Testament tells us he's so good and loving, he was willing to die in our place to make it possible for us to be in relationship. He actually designed redemption in the universe. That's the kind of designer that he is. He wants to actually free and rescue and heal you. If that's the God at the center of it, as offensive as it is, could you just hear the good news? Oh, as this little small creature who's desperately trying to hold their relationships and their body and their world and their job and and society together, that there's a designer who designed. And you, you are not 
an accident. And this world is not an accident. Even though we look at this world in Genesis 1 and 2 through the fallen lens of Genesis 3, where everything collapses on itself and is marred, we see, and we'll focus there next week in this story. So we live this side of Eden in a fallen and broken world, but it doesn't mean that there is no design. Again, I would just love for you maybe to write down the design has redemption at its core. There's a cosmic redemption. The scriptures tell us that that creation is groaning, longing to be redeemed. And there's a particular redemption for you, for for your groanings. Not just sexually and not just with your identity and not just with your, your understanding of your own gender and all the implications of that relationally, but for everything in your life. He, his design touches everything. Okay, third, not only is there a designer who has a design, he designed with dignity, which would be your third D. Go, go back to chapter 1, verse 27. This is massive. So it says that, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, so the design has this intense dignity to it. To be made in the image of God is to give value and worth to every single human. In the available stories in the universe, this is unique to the Christian and Judeo story. That people have dignity not because of the the caste system they were born into, not because of what they accomplished. They simply have value and dignity because they bear the very image of God. That means every person you interact with, that you disagree with, that you're confused by, that you're threatened by, that has harmed you, that you've sought to harm, all of those people are made in God's image. And you, personally, you bear that image. One of the things that's so painful is when you try to make your sexuality or your understanding of gender or or your money, your accomplishments, your job, put anything in its place. When you try to make that your identity, it is so fragile and frail. When someone pushes against it, you lose your mind. It's so threatening to be told that you're not who you think you are when you're responsible to create your own identity. Again, sexually uh, involved or or non Sexually, anything that you look to for, for identity. So there's a, a, a deep theological and then a very practical application to this idea that because God made you in his image, you already have value. You already have worth. You don't have to go seek out an identity. Something has strangely happened in our world as we've heard these rival stories where, where we've now, instead of having identity, something that's received We have it as something that's earned. And now we talk about our behavior in terms of identity. How you act actually shapes your identity. Rather than your essence or your being. The the biblical story is that you are designed with dignity because of the Imago Dei. Uh, That actually orients how you think about your body, how you think about your actions, how you think about what, what you do. But, but behavior versus identity are two rival stories competing for your affections of how you'll know you're okay. And to the degree that you have placed identity in what you do, sexually or non-sexually, how you're performing, what, you, what you're accomplishing, in those spaces what you're doing is you're dehumanizing yourself. And your behavior isn't strong enough to hold an identity, nor is your self-perception. 
I mean, the fluidity by which the rival story tells you you can change and pivot to fit whatever you find yourself in that situation is actually a maddening and very revealing explanation of the fallacy and brokenness of that rival story. If your identity is so fragile that it's fluid and can change regularly, then it's not stable enough to hold you. Instead of that, what the scriptures say is that God designed you with dignity and and he made you have dignity, not because of what you do, not because of what you accomplish, not because of what you feel or what you think about yourself, simply because he created you in his image. And it's such good news to see in verse 31, as he creates all of this, he says it's very good. It wasn't just like a thing that had to happen. And there's things I create I built a weight bench out of scrap lumber in my home. It's very subpar. I designed it. I had intentionality for it. I planned it out. But it's not very good. And I'm afraid to use it, quite honestly, that it might actually collapse under the weight and load I might put on it. So so there was design. There was intentionality. There was a plan. But it's not that great. Instead, what you have here is the designer designs you. And he says, oh, this is very good. God sees you where you are and says, very good. And you have all kinds of doubts. You have all kinds of fears. You have all kinds of shame, all kinds of regrets. And God sees you where you are and he says, very good. The way he made you, with the dignity he bestowed on you, as the one who has the power to create you, he looks over you and says, very good. I know there's rival stories that say you're not good. I know there's misogynistic stories that say to women that your body is dangerous, that you're not actually okay. You either need to hide yourself or be more manly to have value. I know there are rival stories that scream at you, you are not enough, you are not good. But this story is one where God as the designer looks over you and says, oh, the way I made you is good. It's good. And it's not just designed with dignity. It's designed with differences. If you're taking notes, that's your fourth D. Come on a little bit. I got one more. We're going to walk all the way through these Ds. He's designed us with differences. Go back to verse 27 of chapter 1. In this larger narrative, as he's zooming over the whole kind of genealogy, he says, and God made them in his own image, the image of God. He created them male and female He created them. God designed us to bear his image in two unique sexual beings. And he made us to complement each other in ways that we'll see in chapter 2 are beautiful and poetic, that they're necessary and they're, they're, they're a delight to him and to us. But there's a design in this thing. The way he's created us has a function to it. Look in verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. So God created them with dignity, creates them with differences. And then he says, hey, the differences I've given you have a purpose to them so that you could be fruitful and you could multiply. To be sexed beings is essential to God's design. It's not a throwaway idea about who you are. It's not a tangential part of how God 
made you. It's not something that's to be taken lightly or to be embarrassed of or to be ashamed of. God designed you as a sexed being, male and female, with purpose, with beauty, to actually join him in what he's doing in the world. This idea of, of subduing and having dominion, later on I'll talk about, about keeping and guarding the, the garden. It's joining God in what he's doing in the world around us. So, so this idea of male and female, the scriptures say, the biblical story says, is by design. And it's tied to your, your biology. You're, you're an embodied being. And I know this is like wildly contested and there's lots of debate around this. And you have thoughts and feelings that aren't just theories that you've read. You have, you have very real stories you've heard about you and your body and what it means for you to be male or female or, or whether or not you actually are male or female. And I think in this space what we see is that God designed us the way he designed us with this beautiful purpose that's actually to be delighted in, not to be dismissed or, or, or to be diminished or, or to be discarded. He actually designed you to be delighted in by him and by those around you in ways that actually reflect his goodness and glory. So, so in chapter 2, again, as we zoom in, what we see is that God had a, a design in this. This strange story of God making Adam name all the animals isn't just like a a busy work job, like you're like nine to five. You're like, why am I filing these papers? Why am I naming all these animals? It actually was a design for it to see, oh, in all of creation, there's not a compliment to me. I see compliments and pairings everywhere else, day and night, land and water, birds of the air, animals on the ground. I see in those animals compliments, but I don't see a, a compliment or what the ESV translates as a, as a helper fit for him. Uh, it's a, it's a, a fine translation, but, but it has the idea here of, of a necessary ally, somebody who is the same and yet different. The Hebrew word in that space has kind of two parts to it, one that speaks of sameness and one that speaks of difference. So to, to come alongside somebody that is the same and different is to talk about complementing. It's a, it's a beautiful design. And, and he does it in such a way that actually communicates equality and goodness and beauty. Again, it's not voodoo when God, with dirt under his fingernails already from crafting Adam out of the ground, now takes a rib out of his side and creates an equal to him. He doesn't need raw materials. Right? He just spoke the whole world into existence. He doesn't need DNA to get started in some sort of Petri dish. He's teaching Adam and by reflection us about the value and the nearness the oneness and the beauty between men and women who since Genesis chapter 3 often find themselves being commodified, harming one another, taking advantage, being threatened in spaces where we're confused, where, where, we, where we demand from them. That's been our experience from Genesis chapter 3, but the way it was designed is that we would have these differences and they would be beautiful. So, so there's this biology that makes us who we are, which I think gives us a caution to think about stereotypes in our world. To think about when you think about what is a male and what is a female. What does it mean to be male or female? What you'll find is that there's not like a verse that gives this definition somewhere hidden in the scriptures. You see a story of, 
of gendered beings, of, of sexed beings living in the world around them. You, you get some hints and some clues there, but God in his wisdom didn't give such specific things that would become stereotypes for us, that they were tied to certain behaviors or vocations or, or even dress or shapes of bodies. It's, it's deeper than that in those spaces. So, so for us as a church, even to think about what it means to be a male or a female is to be who God created you to be. So much of the pain and confusion and hurt often lies in the idea of, of distorted stereotypes, exaggerated definitions, un, unattainable idealistic versions of other people that you're trying to live into and say, well, if that's what a woman is or that's what a, a man is, I don't feel like that at all. What if in God's design he actually didn't give us such specific actions that this would be something that would fit all cultures in all times? Cultures have definitions of what these things are, but, but the scripture doesn't actually say, because there's, there's cultures where the length of your hair in one space is masculine, other space is feminine. There, there are communities that, that men wear, wear gowns and dresses, and it's not seen as effeminate, it's seen as masculine. In the Bible, you see men doing things like going to war and writing poetry. You see men embodying both ways. And you see women making babies and driving tent pegs through dudes' heads. You see strength expressed in both directions. In this embodied story, right, there's a story God's telling. It's a story that you find yourself in. In this embodied story, what you see is, is a smashing of stereotypes and an invitation into not being more manly or more womanly, but being more like Jesus. The goal of the scriptures is to not make us more of what we already are. You're already a man. You're already a woman. What you need to do is be more like Jesus, to submit your desires and longings and brokenness, your questions to him and ask, what do you want me to do with this inside my story? So, so for us as a church, then, to think about valuing the way God designed our differences would be to, to push back against stereotypes. And again, misogyny is done just a number on us to distort those in ways, particularly to women that say who you are is dangerous or you have to be more like something else to be valuable. I know there's male versions of that, but as a husband and as a father of a daughter, I'm sensitive to those kinds of messages. It's good to be created the way you are, and you are that way because God made you that way. I know, I know, I know there's rival stories. I know there's other ways of understanding that. There's other people that give you meaning around that. And so I want to invite you just on this journey to ask, what is God's story? Maybe you're more familiar with other stories. You, you've been in, in, in like um, indoctrinated. You have dogma around other stories. There's, there's things that have shaped you in ways that you cannot see the world another way. Can I just invite you to be open-minded enough to Look at the scriptures and see what God actually says about the way he designed men and women to work. And again, you'll find a very honest, broken, gnarly story. And one that's really hopeful. And one that you can fit into. So that there's a designer. He designed. He designed with dignity. He designed with differences. And he designed with direction. With, with, with meaning and purpose. We'll unpack this more in the weeks to come, but if you'll just drop down to the end of chapter 2, when God brings Eve to Adam, he busts out in song and says, this is at last now, bone of my bones and flesh of my, blush, my flesh 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The way God designed it was very good. It didn't have shame inside of it. And it had this oneness and union to it. This passage will be quoted in the New Testament, which is thousands of years later, by the way, when the early Christians are trying to make sense of how to live in an over-sexualized world with all the pain and abuse and dysfunction and, and all the ways that there's been oppression. And they're asking, what do we carry into our church? How do we think about our marriages? What do we do with our singleness? What do we do with our bodies? Are we free to do whatever we want? Because there's a rival story that says your body and your soul are two separate things. And so do whatever you want with your body. That is an active, loud story in the first century. So like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul will quote this passage, this ancient passage. He'll go all the way back to the design to give meaning and purpose to somebody's sex life as a single and as a married person. He'll orient their micro story into the macro story of God's design. Questions come up about oppression and abandonment in marriage in Matthew 19. And Jesus will quote this passage to give dignity and meaning and purpose in our relationships as husbands and wives so that we wouldn't move towards abandonment in those spaces. So this text actually has purpose in that it's pointing to something. And Paul will pick it up in Ephesians chapter 5 and will say this whole thing, all of it is about Jesus. The relationship between men and women, the whole way they were fit together as complements, the way that we're designed, all the romance behind it, the way God did all of it, all of it, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, is about Christ and the church, which brings us to where we started. My hope for you is that you would see Jesus, that you would submit yourself to him, that you would ask, what does he say? What is his story? And in this story where all of it is about him, what you find at the center of it is his sacrificing himself on your behalf to make you whole. To get us back in a space where we can be exposed and seen and naked and vulnerable and not feel shamed, not be pushed away from, not be discarded, but actually welcomed and accepted. And here's the beautiful good news of the gospel. God already sees you and he's made provision for all the things that bring you shame. He died on the cross in your place to make you whole so you could be forgiven. And so when we take communion every week, it's not just a ritual we do. It's a story we're telling that has relevance to every part of your life, including your gender and sexuality. In that space, I want to start there with that, that story to give us a space of honesty and a space of hope. We'll take communion, and the way we do it is we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip in the cup. There'll be service here at each of the aisles. There'll be gluten-free station here in the middle. And as you do that, remember it's an embodied story. The bread represents Jesus' body, an embodied God who came into our world and shed his blood as a man in a space. He used his body for our redemption, which has massive implications for your body and your redemption. Would you thank him? Would you bring your questions to him? And would you ask to be nourished by the broken body and shed blood of Christ? If you're not a follower of Jesus, just stay in your seat. We'll sing We'll kind of close down our service here pretty soon, but we'll, we'll sing. You can just pray and ask. I realize if you've never heard this story or you, you have dogma from a, a rival story, this can feel offensive and harmful. And I would just maybe ask for your grace. If things I'm saying are challenging you in ways that you feel uncomfortable or misunderstood, I mean, let's talk about it. 
I don't imagine anything I'm going to say the next couple of weeks are, are airtight or they're not going to change in three months or any of those things. So, man, if I've, if I've stepped on something that's part of your experience and your story, let's talk about that. And actually, you could bring that to Jesus now. Far from talking to me, would you just talk to God and say, I'm dealing with this, I'm struggling with this, I'm feeling confused or frustrated or angry or hurt or misunderstood. Would you bring that to Jesus and ask him to speak to you? Let me, let me pray for us, then we'll take communion, then we'll sing together. Jesus, we ask for your help, and so now we just say out loud, you are what we need. Thank you for the story that you have been telling through your broken body and shed blood since the time you died on the cross. It's a story, again, of honesty, that we needed you to die in our place because of the level of our brokenness, and it's a hopeful story. So would you bring those together now, honesty and hope, to give some orientation to our struggles, our longings, our desires when it comes to our sexuality and our gender. Give us grace now. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're following Jesus, come, and we'll sing together.